What is going on? Why is everyone for every type of fuel source except the one that actually works? Let's talk about oil and gas. Without oil, none of us would be here. That lubricant, I'm kidding. You should be using water-based lubricants. Everyone knows that. Russian gas is a gas. Everyone is hooked on it. Germany greened their way into dependence on Russia. And Russia's running a sale. You can get an awesome deal on gas. So if you have a little extra storage in the basement and you have a little, you know, tanker ship, you can get a 30% discount because wartime is a great time to buy gas for everyone except Americans or Europeans or anyone else who isn't buying from Russia. A lot of U.S. politicians are trying to completely ban Russian imports. It's somewhere between 4 to 7% of U.S. oil imports. Joe Manchin, Nancy Pelosi, Ed Markey, Elizabeth Warren, and the Republicans, they all want to ban it. But the White House is worried that it's going to spike gas prices. There have been some really weird narratives on oil. Pete Buttigieg just went out there with the most let them eat cake kind of thing. Clean transportation can bring significant cost savings for the American people as well. Last month, we announced a $5 billion investment to build out a nationwide electric vehicle charging network so the people from rural to suburban to urban communities can all benefit from the gas savings of driving an EV. Hey, if you had a Tesla, everyone knows it's magic that produces the energy for Teslas. And if you had magic, you wouldn't need gas at all. He also said that buying gas from Iran is not off the table. Could the president possibly consider authorizing the Keystone Pipeline, uh, working something out with Iran? I mean, uh, look, the, the president has said that all options are on the table, but we also need to make sure that uh, uh, we're not galloping after permanent solutions to immediate short-term problems where uh, more strategic and tactical actions in the short term can make a difference. Pick your poison, in other words. And all of these celebrities are also taking this weird Marie Antoinette positioning. So Stephen Colbert, he's like... Today, the average gas price in America hit an all-time record high of over $4 per gallon. Okay, that stings, but a clean conscience is worth a buck or two. I'm willing to pay... It's important. It's important. I'm willing to pay $4 a gallon. Hell, I'll pay $15 a gallon because I drive a Tesla. It's so tone deaf, but I guess you have to be in some sort of cult where, where that's okay, where, where that's even comedy of any sort. And uh, George Takei, who somehow is in our lives, he was like the sixth a uh, star on Star Trek, which lasted for two years. And somehow we cannot extract him from our lives. He's got an empire on social media and his acting career is dwarfed by the dwarf from Austin Powers. But he's got the same line. He's like, hey, what's a few extra bucks to save Ukraine? And then Jen Psaki, who's the uh, propagandist in chief, any PR rep for the government is a propagandist. Uh, she has been blaming 
Russia for the spike in gas prices, which started long before the Ukraine-Russia war. The price of oil has gone up 50% between 2019 and 2021, uh, both between Trump and Biden. A lot of it has to do with all this money that we've pumped into the economy. And so there's all this latent demand. There's not much more supply. In fact, the supply has been constrained because of COVID and a lot of factories and a lot of shipping hasn't been happening. And now there's all this demand now that things are opening up. So it's creating inflation and a spike in oil prices. And also when Biden got into office, he nixed the Keystone Pipeline, which would have created another important energy source. Now you might be saying to yourself, Steve, why are you making such a big deal about energy? It's just a few bucks. What's the big deal? This war isn't about gas or oil, is it? Well, let's talk about that. Turns out there are several gas pipelines from Russia, from Gazprom, through Ukraine to the rest of Europe. And Ukraine collects transit fees for all of that gas. Russia doesn't want to pay transit fees. They don't want to be dependent on other countries to carry their gas. So they've created these Nord Stream lines through the Baltic Sea. And then there's another one called Turk Stream, which was originally supposed to go to Europe, but was uh, redirected to Turkey. They bypass Ukraine and some of these other countries where they don't have to pay transit fees. Right now, Europe has an anti-competitive law. The same company that controls the gas can't also control the pipelines. Well, if Russia shuts off the gas, it doesn't matter who controls the pipeline. So their anti-competitive, anti-monopoly law is just a facade. It's kind of BS. It's like if Amazon owned its own trucks versus shipping through UPS. If Amazon decided to cut off shipments, you still wouldn't get your stuff, even if UPS was still delivering. As of now, Ukraine still carries 80% of European gas. That's pretty wild. And in 2008 and 2009, when Russia and Ukraine had disputes over payments, guess what? Gas stopped flowing. So this is a very precarious dependency. The last thing you want to be is dependent on other countries for your fuel. And Germany certainly is, and other European countries. Same thing with Poland. None of these guys can stop the imports. A puppet regime in Ukraine certainly alleviates a headache for Russia. Now, I don't think it's enough to justify an entire war, but the annexation of Crimea kind of had to do with gas pipelines. When Russia took Crimea, it took control of a seaport that it used to have to pay to lease. It also increased the shoreline from which Russia could build its Black Sea pipeline. So it is strategic and it was about gas and it was about money. It's not all about NATO. It's about resources. Oil and gas are still king. The U.S. is on the cusp of energy independence, but there's a couple of reasons we can't quite get there. So the last year that I had data for was 2020. Now, remember, that was a pandemic year, so consumption wasn't at the same level as uh, 2019 or as it is today. But uh, the U.S. produced about 18.4 million barrels uh, per day 
and consumed 18.12. So it's very close. We imported petroleum, 52% came from Canada, 11 from Mexico, 7% from Russia, and then 7% from Saudi Arabia, 4% from Colombia. So in theory, we could probably make up for whatever we lose from Russia from these other sources, maybe from Canada and Mexico alone. There's a few reasons we haven't reached energy independence, even though on paper it seems like we should. So the first is, it's just how markets operate. Whenever you've got a bunch of buyers and sellers, they're going to sell to whoever the highest bidder is. And if that highest bidder is outside the US, that's where our oil or gas is gonna go. These companies, especially ones in the US, are not patriotic. They're not obligated to sell to American consumers first. It's not like Gazprom, which is a state enterprise. Same thing with all the OPEC countries. Those are centrally controlled by the governments. Here, you know, these guys respond to demand and they'll send it to wherever it needs to be sent. The second reason this doesn't happen as easily is because petroleum or shale needs to be processed. And a lot of times that processing is not here domestic. Sometimes it's overseas. And there are a lot of complicated round trips to process it and turn it into usable fuel. Another reason we're having trouble getting to energy independence is US gas production isn't profitable at low prices. American shale is much more expensive and complicated to procure and to process. So we can only make money above $75 per barrel. But because OPEC countries kept prices below that for so long, American investors pulled their money. And now that prices are high, investors are like, yeah, we're ready to invest. But consumers are screaming, help. So it's this weird situation where the motivation for investors to build out this capacity is exactly the opposite of what people want. We want energy security, but not at these prices. Really, the only solution is if we institute some sort of controls on the market where we get priority or subsidize the procurement of shale, which we already subsidized quite a bit of the oil industry. I think I had a number here somewhere. Yeah, so we have a 440 billion annual government subsidy for oil companies. But also these companies aren't obligated to us. We have no laws that mandate that. And if we were to treat it as a strategic asset, there's no way around having some sort of control, saying, hey, if you're going to drill for oil in the U.S. or if you're going to procure anything from national lands or uh, off American shores, then you have to prioritize the U.S. That breaks the market because now they're no longer able to sell to the highest bidder. They have to first uh, appease whatever deal they have for U.S. consumers. And maybe that's a good thing. Maybe it isn't. I haven't really done the analysis. But while prices are high, our producers could increase their production and lower the cost. They're choosing not to, just like anything else. If prices go up, you can flood the market with more supply and that brings prices down. 
These guys are choosing not to do it. So OPEC announced they're not going to do it. And so far, American producers aren't doing it either. As much as Russia is to blame for some of the recent increases, these companies didn't make money during the pandemic because everyone stayed home. And now they're seeing it as an opportunity to make up for all those losses and they're doing it. That's the reality of our energy situation. Now, instead of asserting government controls and forcing these companies to provide for Americans first, we could increase the subsidy and we become the preferred buyer. The problem with that is it takes away any incentive for innovation. So there may be ways to make our production more efficient, but what incentive do you have to make it more efficient if you're just going to make that money anyway from the government subsidy? So you have to be really careful with subsidies or controls because both lead to inefficiencies of sorts. There's no perfect government intervention. And you could say, well, why don't we nationalize the industry just like uh, Russia with Gazprom and then our troubles are over. Do you really think that government will run the oil industry really well? We can barely run the actual government, much less industries run by the government. But you could get some smart people in room to figure this out where they keep enough incentives to innovate and lower prices without export controls. But the reality is Putin has taken in billions and billions of dollars since the war started because we're so dependent. When I say we, the world is so dependent on Russian oil and gas. I think he's taking in over a billion a day for each day of the war. You know, you do the math, but it's insane how little leverage we have over him in that regard. And most experts are saying we still haven't seen the worst of it. Oil is probably going to go up to $200 a barrel. When gas is $10 a gallon, we're going to need Zelensky to defend our capital. So he's going to have to bring that green t-shirt over and prevent the next January 6th, which will be about gas. So I started thinking deeply about energy independence and just our energy situation around the time of the COP26 conference last year. And I just decided to look at their agenda. So they had a website that had summaries of all 11 days. Can you imagine 11 days? Who, what conference is 11 days? I would have killed myself. Anyway, it had one page with all of the summaries. So just out of curiosity, I decided to search for the word nuclear to see, you know, how many panels they had or workshops or, or presentations about nuclear. Not one, not a single workshop in the entire green energy conference about nuclear, which is the only clean fuel that real experts will tell you can replace fossil fuels. 75% of the energy in France comes from nuclear. And both France and the Nordics are trying to push the EU in that direction. China said, mm, we're not going to your stupid conference. And they announced that over the next 15 years, they're going to build 150 new nuclear reactors. So they're not messing around. They're like, look, it's great. You want to wait for the wind to blow? <sighs> Great. Solar, 
wind. They're good maybe in some select uses, but for the most part, they are unreliable. There's not enough ways to store that energy. It's too intermittent, takes up too much space, and it will plunge you into darkness like it did Germany. But we have some technologies that can replace fossil fuels and finally make us energy independent. Our nuclear technology now is fission, which creates some radioactive waste, but fusion is coming. I know it's been coming for a while. It's a, it's a very slow to come. The next joke was not going to be good. At first I was like, you know, I might do a whole episode on energy independence and some of these findings that I, that I had. And then I realized there is no business case necessary. Germany is a case study. Germany has greened its way into the hands of Vladimir Putin. It's a living, breathing case study of how this type of non-nuclear green is a coal and fossil fuel movement. That's right. Non-nuclear green is a fossil fuel play. When that occurred to me, I'm like, wait a minute, what is going on? Why is everyone for every type of fuel source except the one that actually works? When you look at what people who are serious about becoming energy independent like China, like France are doing, they are going nuclear. There is no other choice right now. Maybe in the future we'll discover something, maybe fusion happens, but right now none of these sources are adequate. So I'm like, what is going on? So I tweeted this sometime last year. I'm no conspiracy theorist, but the conspicuous, aggressive, systematic exclusion of nuclear from the green energy debate only favors select interests pushing inferior, non-scalable, and far into the future technologies always favors incumbents. And in the case of non-nuclear green movement, it quickly starts to feel like an astroturfing campaign for OPEC, the Saudis, Russia, and other benevolent green giants. I used green giants sarcastically. I tweeted that January 9th. Well, Guess what happened next? In middle of March, I saw a video of a French academic who released a study that said U.S. environmental groups took millions of dollars in Russian money in order to promote non-nuclear green solutions. We're being played by Russia the whole time. They're funding our activists to be against nuclear. The one thing that can actually replace fossil fuels and make us energy independent, both in the U.S. and in Europe. And then I'm like, okay, this is just one report. I need to do a little more research. Well, guess what my research produced? The Committee on Science, Space, and Technology in the House of Representatives, wrote a letter to Steve Mnuchin during the Trump administration, said the following, the Committee on Science, Space, and Technology is conducting oversight of what appears to be a concerted effort by foreign entities to funnel millions of dollars through various nonprofit entities to influence the U.S. energy market. 
According to the former Secretary General of NATO, quote, Russia, as part of their sophisticated information and disinformation operations, engaged actively with so-called non-governmental organizations, NGOs, environmental organizations working against shale gas to maintain dependence on imported Russian gas. They didn't want us doing fracking. So all of that anti-fracking and anti-nuclear movements, it's all fake. They're made to look like grassroots, but really they're just giant disinformation campaigns funded by Russia through activist NGOs to get people here thinking that they're bad. So we are more dependent on sellers of oil like Russia. It's mind blowing. I was like, in the letter, it quoted another NATO official. It said, in general, the potential for Russia using energy supplies as a means of putting pressure on European nations is a matter of concern. And Even presidential candidate Hillary Clinton in 2014 in a private speech, so you know it has to be true because Hillary only says the truth in private speeches, she said, this is according to documents from WikiLeaks, quote, we, referring to the State Department in the U.S., were up against Russia pushing oligarchs and others to buy media. We were even up against phony environmental groups, and I'm a big environmentalist, but these were funded by the Russians to stand against any effort, oh, that pipeline, that fracking, and whatever will be a problem for you. And a lot of the money supporting that message was coming from Russia. That was Hillary Clinton, 2014, speaking to private interests, speaking truth. So in that same letter, It said that the report found that Russia Today, which is their official news channel, ran anti-fracking programming highlighting environmental issues and the impact on public health, which is likely reflective of the Russian government's concern about the impact of fracking and the U.S. natural gas production and the potential to challenge Gazprom's profitability. And all of this money that went to these environmental groups was funneled through a Bermuda-based shell company called Klein Limited. Tens of millions of dollars funded these NGOs and bogus activist groups, including the Sierra Club and the League of Conservation Voters Education Fund. They took Russian money and they made it look like anonymous donations. They have something similar for a lot of these best-selling authors. They'll hire a company for 300000 or 500000 that makes it look like individuals are ordering it. So the same exact thing was happening here to make it look like, oh, look at all these individuals that are supporting our grassroots effort to stop fracking and to stop nuclear. And just recently, John Delaney, who's a former Democratic congressman, he tweeted, quote, For decades, protesters, many self-labeled as progressive, worked to kill both new nuclear energy projects and new real estate development projects. It's arguable that those efforts contributed to climate change and an affordable housing crisis. We need less NIMBY and more YIMBY. In future episodes, I'm going to dig deeper into the anti-GMO movement the pro-bug movement, and the pro 
plant-based food movement. I suspect some of these same forces are acting on those as well. What it made me realize is we're repeating the same exact mistake that we made with our manufacturing policy. And by policy, I mean a horrific mistake, which is signing hundreds of free trade agreements during the Clinton administration, sending all of our great high-paying blue-collar jobs to other countries, and not having anything to replace them with. And we're about to do the same thing here with energy. We're going to let go of the things that work in exchange for something that doesn't work. And we're about to make these same mistakes that Germany made. And we can't afford to do that. And all these people out there, these dumb Congress people and these useful idiots protesting without having any of this information and looking at this crying girl, what does Greta want? I mean, we were going to make independent decisions based on science and fact, but what does this 12 year old want who's crying at the UN? We got to get serious. China's getting serious. France is serious. The Nordics are serious. We are clowning with useful idiots who are willing to sell ourselves to Gazprom and OPEC. And stupid Cuomo caved in to the pressure. He closed down Indian Point nuclear power plant. And now New Yorkers are paying insane rates for energy because they can't have access to clean nuclear. Germany closed its nuclear power plants and now they have outages regularly. And while this whole thing was happening, House liberals urged Biden to declare climate emergency and ban drilling on federal lands. Look, I'm not a big fan of drilling. I'm not a big fan of doubling down on oil. But coming out of all of this, there are two rules. Number one, energy independence and security. Number two, climate change. Because without number one, What's the point of number two? Yeah, we'll save the planet. We'll have no country. And in transitioning away from oil, natural gas is an improvement and fracking is a viable option. And I think we need to very seriously reevaluate the way we've been thinking about all of this. I still think we need to incentivize innovation on green energy. We need to upgrade our grids. We should upgrade our fleets of cars, but those fleets of cars are only as good as the back end that's used to provide energy for them. The sooner we make that back end nuclear or some other clean source, the better off we'll be. That's it for this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please share it with others. Review it on iTunes. Really helps with visibility for the show. And sign up for the newsletter, stevefactor.com. Sign up on Patreon, patreon.com forward slash McFuture. Only five bucks a month. It's a great way to not only support the show, but get tons of member-only material. There's a new episode that's going to be posted right after this one later this week. That's it. I'm Steve Factor. See you next time on The McFuture. Nuclear is clean. Each person's lifetime consumption of energy produces about 
a gold bar's worth of nuclear waste. And they found a way to bury them underground until the half-life dissipates. That's going to take thousands of years, but it's still better than anything else we've got. And it's probably less waste than all of the windmills that have to be built and taken down and replaced and solar panels built. So at worst, it's a wash.